1: Matt and Hillary.
0: That's right, it is.
1: And we're back.
0: We're back, and that's Matt.
1: And I'm Hi- Hillary. <laughs> no, you're Hillary, and I'm Matt. That's right. Uh, and if we sound... This is, Go ahead.
0: Well, as I say, this is our first show recorded in our new um, technologically mediated um
1: Well, we've always been technologically manner? mediated.
0: Well, I know, but, you know... Now the technology is between
1: us as well as between us and our listeners. That's true. And so if it sounds uh, not the same way that it has in the <laughs> past differently, <laughs> then that's We're doing why. it on
0: Skype. We're, we're do- recording on Skype.
1: We're doing it on Skype. We have different microphones, so the levels might be blowing out, whatever. It's, we're, it's a period of adjustment. Uh, we're doing
0: our best. In terms My- of technology. Right, Matt now lives in the woods, uh, so this is what we have to do. It's basically, he lives in the woods with Skype. <laughs> I
1: have the woods. I have Skype. I have a Lowe's that I go to almost every day, and mm. um, that's uh, kind of it. And yeah. um, and it's all great and good and uh, wonderful. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's gonna be. It's gonna be fine. <laughs> Well, Matt, happy to be recording a new episode with you. Oh, happy to be recording a new episode with you, Hillary. Do you even remember the last one that we recorded? I do remember it, and I need to um, uh, listen to it and edit it and put it out in advance of this one. Um, And I don't, but I don't remember a whole lot of it, to be quite honest with you.
0: Well, we talked about the first uh, chunk of The Martians. Yes. As I recall, we talked about the Michelle in Antarctica, exploring Fossil Canyon, the Archaea plot, uh, and the way the land spoke to us. That was last episode. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we ended talking about the really beautiful last paragraph, but then we probably talked for like 20 minutes after we ended. But we ended, I think, talking about the last paragraph of the way the land spoke to us, because Mm -hmm. we both thought that that was really... Um, a beautiful reflection on landscape and paying attention and noticing that you're in a place, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. I feel like that's where we ended last time. And then this time we were going to talk about the stories, Maya and Desmond Four tele- teleological trails and discovering life. So that's um, sections five, six and seven of the Martians.
1: Sounds good. Right? Yeah. Are we on the
0: same page? Yeah. We're definitely awesome.
1: on the same page this time. Uh- <laughs>
0: Uh, awesome.
1: Um, Uh, what did you think of them?
0: So (laughs) great opening gambit. I love it. Um, so I, uh, I've been, I've been worried about not wanting to read ahead in the book. Yeah. Far, because I feel like I have such a bad memory and I don't want to like, you know, have our conversations end up us talking about something that happens like toward the end or whatever. Um, but I've, been but i feel very like i would like to just sit down and read the whole book you yeah, know right. in just like a couple of sittings um so i think one of the big things i've been thinking about is how you know i sort of thought okay this is a collection of stories and then i see that like toward the end there are a bunch of poems mm-hmm. but it's really like the we talked about this i think last time a bit the like The stories are so various, you know, they're various in their modes, in their kind of imaginings, like even in the degree to which it seems like a story. Mm -hmm. They're various in their relationship to the Mars trilogy. But there are these really just lovely kind of thematic things that happen Mm -hmm. throughout. Um, And so I find the kind of like the shifts between the sort of formal shifts to be really interesting and lovely. I've just, I feel like there's this kind of, um, there's like a poetic quality yeah. to this. That's always, I think, I think it's there in the Mars trilogy too, but, but here because you're not being driven at all by plot. I mean, occasionally there are moments where you're like, Oh, I'd like to know what happens next. But most of the time, this is just like not about plot at yeah, all. Yeah. Um, and I'm really I'm really enjoying that.
1: Yeah, um I agree. Like I think that calling it having it like be a calling it a poetical quality seems right to me that um and that that yes, they're not driven by plot but they're more like these <laughs> sort of sections or this kind of um cross sections basically of a moment mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Um that are like cut out of you could imagine them being incorporated into the actual trilogy, right? But because they're sort of cut out and made to be their own thing, they are—they're not beholden to anything else, and they can just stand alone. <clears throat> um, but then, even though they stand alone, to think about them against the stuff that we find in the Mars trilogy um, makes it makes them really, really interesting because there's these this whole like apocryphal or alternative universe or whatever um that's either going on behind the scenes or didn't didn't quote actually happen yeah yeah um and opens up a and uh opens up a whole different way of sort of experiencing the books and mars and the future and not just these characters but what constitutes characters in a certain way or like how yeah. a character is drawn um so it's really cool. Like I um, I have not uh, had your discipline. I have actually been reading ahead uh, <laughs> quite a bit uh, because I'm uh, living, as you say, I'm living in the woods. And, um, you know, I've already dug a garden. So after that, what's there to do but read? And so but I have reread. <clears throat> so I'm going to reread them before we we talk about them. So I've read actually Maya and Desmond probably like three times now because yeah. we yeah. were gonna record early, like a few weeks ago, and then I was too tired from moving. So we didn't record. Um so I've actually read this like at least three times I would say. Um and uh the other ones are really uh uh great too. And then and and as I'm because I'm reading ahead, I have read ahead there there are there is this interesting pattern of things that we'll um i think discover not not exactly a pattern but you know the the different um pieces here the different sort of short stories novellas almost do kind of like there is interesting ways to like categorize them mm-hmm. and like put them mm-hmm. against each other right um <clears throat> which is fun, really fun and, and exciting and interesting. Um,
0: Yeah. And I feel like one of the things that happens, or I guess two of the things that happens that happen are remembering back to like the early, um, our early conversations about red Mars, when we talked a lot about the sort of the idea that like various of the characters have and that the then the narrative lets you think about about you know newness about whether going to Mars is like um gets you out of earth history, cuts the cord, mm-hmm. you start anew, whether that's possible, and those were like the questions we talked a lot about about revolution too, like you know um if revolution is a kind of break like what kind of break is it what are the what are the things that continue how does a revolution fit into Mm. the idea of like an ongoing history or something like that and i feel like the way that these stories are ordered and the way that they repeat things that happen in the novels but but with differences yeah um and that idea that you just said that like you know you could see them as like Little bits of forgotten history, or like, oh, this is someone else's point of view that we're seeing finally. Yeah. Um, or even I was thinking, like, with Forteological Trails, where like the narrator just seems to be a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, it's also a way of like the Little Red Men sections and some of the other prologues in the trilogy, it's a way of introducing these kind of voices that aren't specifically attached to characters. Yeah. You know? So we're both getting the kind of like we get these um almost essayistic stories that are feel like they're really intensely about the land and imagining being on the land. Um, but that also give a they also have a voice to them.
1: Mm-hmm too Mm
0: -hmm. you know so there's a way in which like there's a kind of like um there's like an expanding of the scope of the novels maybe
1: yeah and and also there's expanding of the scope of the novels and then going back to the first thing you said there's expanding of the form of the novels too Mm -hmm. because these aren't as you say they're not stories necessarily they're sometimes essays or essayistic or just impressions or poetical prose things or something um And that's really interesting too, especially when you like four teleological trails seems like a very different form of like a different kind of a genre that I want to talk about. Um, so let's talk about Maya and Desmond.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: divided into five sections, five brief sections, finding him, helping, what is it? Finding him, helping him, helping her, the years, helping him, losing him, um, and it makes me really think about the way that the mars trilogy and red mars particularly really started with maya as yeah. a really important character and then not that she stopped being important but that saxon and Anne really took over a lot of the the latter like the green and red uh green and blue mars at least in our discussions of them right and right. how maya was a really really central character in red mars and at least for me like really dropped off uh in terms of you know she's the first Mm. aside from frank in the first section she's the she's the voice in the second section right um and here it uh this section brings her back into uh focus but also the focus is split obviously between i mean it's the focus is hers, but her focus is on Coyote and not on Mars and that whole kind of revolutionary story that the trilogy proper tells. Right, um,
0: right. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that this is an interesting... Um, it is. It does give us an interesting view of Maya that I think we lose a little bit as the novels go on where we... I mean, even though this is a story about her and Coyote's relationship, mm-hmm. right? And that I mean, and I suppose like at least one of the significant things it adds in or, you know, alters from the trilogy is saying that they had a relationship with each other. Um, But even though it's the story of their relationship, it feels like actually it does this kind of work to, to reposition Maya as in some ways like coyote as a kind of like um, a deeply political actor, but who doesn't, but who unlike the explicitly political Frank or John like doesn't act on her own behalf. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Not that, I don't mean that like she's altruistic. I Mm -hmm. mean like in some ways, like, you know, she is both very concerned with being active and making things happen. Um, And we see that like in blue Mars too, as she kind of returns to the stage, um, uh, um, but she's also she's not Nadia, you know. She's not the person who's gonna like figure out how to just like you know fucking make things work for everybody. Right. She she like Coyote is a person who has the possibility of introducing like a sudden change or a transformative moment or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. she has a she has a like um like a focused kind of chaotic quality in the way that coyote kind of does, you know there's an anarchic quality to her too
1: yeah she's the one who like often rallies like not like she'll rally nadia for the third revolution right she's like come on one more time you know and she's the one by the end that's just making dinner and sort of making sure that everybody's kind of fed while they kind of plot the revolution so like it's a really important role that she plays behind the scenes without which the other people couldn't do their thing but she's kind of a like happy to whatever caretake or oversee or something right Um,
0: right and I I think that what makes me feel like she's like coyote and we see her as like coyote in this story is that they're both people who see um like they have a kind of like um this like kind of big picture political view mm. of mm-hmm. things, right? You know, just like we always know Coyote, we know Coyote throughout is always moving around to figure out where the next place is where he can make something happen, you yeah. know, where he can blow something up or climb up something or do whatever it is he's going to do yeah. that like stirs up a little bit of trouble that he thinks is tact will be tactical, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I think Maya is kind of like that too. And in this story, like I love that she... Basically, here we get Maya saying to Coyote, "You guys need to get out of here." Mm. Um, when right in the period before Hiroko and the rest of the people from the farm leave, mm-hmm. you guys need to get out of here. Otherwise, it's going to be the police here. Right? You know, yeah. She like she's she. So I guess maybe like part of part of what I'm thinking is that the two of them uh, have a commitment to f- to freedom. Yeah. You know, like political commitment to freedom.
1: Right. Well, so a couple things um you mention a free political commitment to freedom what's interesting <clears throat> um is that on on the trip out right in the first section when she's when this is, it, you know it takes up the moment right after she sees the face basically in the in the farm yeah. and she tells john and john believes her and then there's this great paragraph on seventy eight about you having to walk into having to lean into reality to make progress, which I really liked That's yeah, what, uh, yeah but on seventy nine um she uh is she's looking for him, and she's making sure that no one sees her uh doing it so she, and then on the top it says so she had oh she so already she was a kind of ally to the man, so they've already mm-hmm. created this kind of alliance. Yeah, yeah among themselves. And then as her search progressed, she realized how much all the chambers looked the same, no matter how they had been customized for use. They were living inside tanks of metal and each tank resembled the others, much like the years of a life, much like city life everywhere. She saw one day, room after room after room. Occasionally, the great bubble chamber was the sky, human life, a matter of boxes, the escape from freedom, right? Um, So yeah, this is kind of uh, already apparently like in like uh, a hint of intolerable intolerability here, like living in this cooped up area um, and uh, the exact opposite of freedom, uh, what they're, what they're, what they're doing in a, in this weird paradoxical way. Um, yeah.
0: Oh, can I just go, say no, go I ahead. That on, on 77? Cause uh, I also like, I like that passage you read. I also have that marked. Um, and I was thinking on 77 she calls up mm. the plans for the ship, studies them, because she's going to try to figure out where where mm-hmm. this who this face is, where he is. Uh, she had known the areas of the ship the way one knows a hotel or a ship or a plane or of one's hometown, for that matter, as a set of her life roots wound through the hole in an internal mental map, which itself could be called up sharply visible in her mind's eye. But the rest was only vagueness, deduced if she ever thought about it from the parts she knew, but deduced wrongly as she now found out. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I think that has an interesting relationship to that idea of like being in this series of containers and the series of containers is not only like how you live on a ship. It's like how you live in a city. Yeah. Um, And I mean, and I think we get hints later that maybe also that could be just a description of like how human living is so much about like, you know, trying to set up boundaries and containers and, and, and walling off freedom, which is, you know, frightening and unknown, whatever. Um, But also I think we get another kind of thematic thing there at the beginning, which is that idea, both of like sort of habitus, like your habitual life roots, um, the idea of mental mapping, that picture you have in your head of how things work. But then also this idea of, and you know, this is like, I guess, um, this is so much what coyote embodies that like we think that we know our entire worlds and we have maps of them but what we have maps of are just like the places that we walk through and the things that we use and there are always spaces that we actually don't know and we haven't thought about and like so part of the presence of coyote calls maya to think about you know not only like where might he be but what are the parts of this world i live Mm. in that I don't think about and yeah. don't interact with and actually thus in effect have sort of excluded from my idea of what the world is. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah.
1: And
0: and that, I love that because I feel like that sort of, that feels to me very like much, that feels a lot like, so one clearly like the set of short stories that come after the great trilogy of novels, like has that kind of supplemental mm-hmm. right here yeah. or the other other bits of the world or, you know, you always feel like, you know, the world, but there's always more, right. Um, there's always something else. Uh, but also I feel like that idea about like the trails that you walk and the way in which the trail walking, the trail constitutes your knowledge of Mm -hmm. something, but that's also like, you know, about habit and history, um, as much as it is about finding your way. Like that feels to me like, that is like a big theme of this book, at least so far yeah. you know, in, in multiple of the stories. Yeah. Yeah. So I, just think I think it's awesome. I think yeah. it's very cool. I think it's cool to sort of put imagine Maya and Coyote who we feel like we know really well in some ways in relation to that kind of question about like unknownness or familiarity or whatever, Yeah. whatever that is.
1: The other thing that I was going to say is that we don't, that this isn't Coyote, this is Desmond. Right. right that right. that when we're first introduced yeah, yeah. to him in the Mars trilogy is that um we're introduced to him as a face, and then the first time we've become aware of him as an actual actor, it's as the myth of coyote as this like this kind of you know almost right whatever ethereal force that just does things, and here we're introduced to him as Desmond, and we get this great moment um later once they and so they become you know fast friends and they have a they're kind of almost conspiratorial um it's you know he as he says it'll be uh we'll help each other they'll be the there will be the hundred and all their jostle and then you and me helping each other right Mm -hmm. so this is a secret relationship even from Hiroko who has her own secret you know encampment or whatever but then um uh they they themselves will be uh, this like secret pair, and then once um coyote starts doing coyote like things and Maya starts hearing about this coyote person, then they meet up again and she's like, "Are you this coyote and he's like <laughs> yeah i'm i am i I'm the coyote and she's like, that's cool, and he's like it's useful i don't I don't really get it I'm Desmond though you know um so that's really neat um and and it also like speaks to the kind of thing that you were talking about where there's this kind of you know, a completely different point of view about who these people are and what they're kind of doing. Right. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, and, the, and I, I feel like it's just like, it's interesting to think about how it changes, um, how it changes, how we think about both Maya and Coyote, if we think of them having a relationship, uh, you know, so if, if, Coyote has like this primary relationship with Maya or a relationship that's formed early on with Maya, then it's not him sort of outside the first one. It's not the first 100 plus one. Right. It's like the first 100, you know, minus one plus one right. or plus, plus two, two or something, two, you know yeah. what I mean? I, right. something, yeah. like, something like that, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. Which I do think is a big, I think that that actually is kind of a big reconfiguration of, um, yeah, just how we think about those people and how we think about where the bonds are.
1: Well, there's almost a reconfiguration of that you have to like or there's a. it's almost this thing of like there's this one moment in Green Mars when Maya and Desmond meet Art in the in the chaos. And yeah. like it says, welcome to yeah. Mars. And it's almost as if this whole thing has been extrapolated out prior to that yeah. and before yeah. and after that. So that yeah. that like. Um it's I I you know be I'd be curious to ask Stan when he came up with the idea to do this um and if it was at that moment like well I wonder what happened between them before that and what happened between them after that right um because that's really the only real moment in the whole trilogy when the two of them are sort of together alone I think there's also moments after she kills Right, she Phyllis, Phyllis and when they're right. sort of doing that whole mission and stuff but pretty much they're not really I mean in the trilogy um Michelle and Coyote are seen as more the best friends and we don't really see right. a relationship between Maya and Desmond um and so that's you know that it makes you like rethink those those particular scenes specifically, and also the way that like the different revolutions and political uh, events kind of unfolds, you know, in, in a way. Right.
0: Right. Um, right. Cause I think it, it, it does make a kind of difference to think, um, you know, not that Hiroko and the farm crew left in accord with whatever, like uh, mystical or practical impulse Hiroko might've come up with, but that, You know, they were going to leave anyway, but they are prompted to leave because Maya says to Desmond, you guys should go. Right, (laughs) right. You need to go. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's such a like, um, and then it's really, that becomes, I mean, I think that this, I found this story like very, um, I also read it several times. um, And and had that experience of thinking something slightly different about it each time that I read it. I feel like it's kind of, it's a subtle story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it has like a kind of satisfaction, which is, hey, two people you liked from the Mars trilogy actually were not only friends mm-hmm. but slept together. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Slash fiction, but, I think, is what it's called.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, the, um, but I think also it just it because it it makes you think about things like. Events like what causes an event, you know, what were the big events in the trilogy? Well, one of the big ones, even though it happens so early, is Hiroko and the farm group leaving, breaking off from the first hundred, constituting this separate, um, you know, constituting this separate uh, world, mm-hmm. right? Actually, constituting a separate world. Mm-hmm. And then that, and which, which not only like you know makes all of these things happen in terms of the novels, including producing you know produces a refuge. It also produces ultimately like the greatest kind of the great mystery in the novel, which is where is Hiroko? Is Hiroko alive? Is Hiroko the woman um, right. casting surf casting at the very end? Surf fishing,
1: end? fish surfing, yeah. or something? Uh, <laughs> I don't think fish it's fish surfing. surfing. <laughs> Did she turn into Aquaman at the end? I was always. Uh,
0: yeah. You remember that part? Yeah. That was, that was a cool part. Um, uh, But it, so I feel like this doing this kind of like, you know, little like quasi revisionist story makes you think about events, but then the story itself is so much about like, um, the uh, ultimately kind of like the uneventfulness of living on Mars. Yeah. I mean, because it feels like the, right. the kind of center of the story is Maya living in a place called low point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just like, by the way, right. on the list of places you should not move. Don't move there. <laughs> speaking, speaking of a hilarious version of like the pathetic fallacy, you're yeah. living in low point <laughs> and, and, you know, and just being Hellist sort of
1: basin. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Immersed there in a relationship with this guy, Oleg, who sounds nice and not at all suited to Maya. And the kind of like um, the sort of weird like uh, um, pull between like the thing that feels like it's makes sense and is habitual and is comforting and is daily and like have wanting to have a different kind of conception of a life. Anyway, that's, so So I think that there's an interesting kind of like juxtaposition between a story that feels like it could let you ask questions about why did these things happen in the Mars trilogy or what's the, you know, what's the secret backstory or something. And then this kind of like thinking about uh, like habit and routine and Mm -hmm. dailiness and being, you know, immersed in dailiness and like the little world of daily life, which goes back to that moment that you read before, yeah you know, like here we are in these like kind of series of
1: yeah boxes, yeah,
0: and that I think is another that feels to me like that's another kind of thematic thing throughout this book also, yeah, I do come back to these like evocations of like r- repetitiveness daily life, the good and bad parts of domesticity
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah um and yeah, and the way that, uh, yeah, and the way that friends can break up that everydayness, like dropping by, right? Um, right, right. On, you know, and, and you know, there's, you know, he's such a great, um, Stan is such a great user of the kind of, I forget what it what it was, one of those tenses that we were talking about in the interview, but on 89, there's just a paragraph that starts, then one day out in a rover, yeah. you know, like... Things yeah. go on, and you know it. You know life just happens over weeks and weeks and months and months, and then one day, you know, she, Coyote dropped by, and and uh, they hung out, and right. Um,
0: and the interruption is like small. It's yeah. like not a big deal, yeah. right? Right. Um, it's it is really of just ru- kind of
1: like it's part of the routine.
0: Yeah, and she get you know she gets to talk to somebody, but but that conversation with Coyote makes her re- realize that like the little world that she's made with Oleg is making her profoundly yeah. Unhappy and it's unsuited.
1: Well, (sighs) the other thing that actually the relationship between Maya and Desmond creates is the relationship between Maya and Michelle, ultimately, that he kind of, you know, surreptitiously steers her toward Michelle and that Maya kind of, you know, it's this kind of other manipulation or something like she talks about his expression of smugness at one point <laughs> um but that you know it, it it does seem like a necessary thing hmm. that coyote's um intervention there uh sort of pushed her into the 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 the, the you know deep long relationship with michelle um but a- among that everydayness and uh kind of routine on page 92 we get like the entire plot of red mars in like two paragraphs (laughs) which is another thing that i just love about this section is that um it encompasses the entirety of the trilogy pretty much uh, up until the third martian revolution i think and um but it's just these little episodes uh over the course of like 200 years and interestingly you know going back to the kind of when when john and maya get the treatment in the Mm -hmm. first one and he's like we should get married and we'll be married and we'll separate and come back together that is the relationship she has with desmond right yeah right that is the relationship they have like they are sort of this weird um not quite marriage but they're best friends with a secret together that only they know and that are deeply meaningful to each other right um so in a weird way she does she does have the marriage the kind of weird you know centuries-long marriage that john wanted with her but just with desmond in a in a sense
0: yeah yeah
1: um
0: yeah i think that's a nice reading and i mean it is also i i think like it is a nice an aspect of the story is nice is that is the sort of invocation of like friendship and love you Mm -hmm. know um but yeah the thing you were saying about how the whole like this this story takes place over the course of the whole trilogy i mean it really is like kind of um i mean i guess if you're just reading it as a story on its own this would be less notable but like it is marvelous in its like compression yeah and, and it and it's very like it points you to like, you know, oh, then a whole bunch of events happened. And then it was a period in which she was just in the low point for yeah. a long, you know, the kind of like the accordioning of time or whatever is really amazingly done.
1: It makes you think like, what would what would be the experience of reading this without having read the Mars trilogy? <laughs> like that would yeah. be very bizarre. And then like and then going back and reading the Mars trilogy, like,
0: yeah, right. That right. would
1: be super weird. You'd um, go
0: back and read it the whole time waiting for uh, Maya and Desmond to get together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? um, um, I wanted to ask you about the um, on one hundred two to one hundred three is the short. I think the shortest section called the years. The years. yeah. Which is I while she and Mich- uh, Michelle are, are together. Mm-hmm. Um, this includes. I think going to yeah going to Earth, um but I was thinking about the um uh on one o three um she seldom saw Desmond or thought of him much, and indeed she and Michelle ran into the other old ones far less than they ever had before. Their circle of acquaintances was largely that of their workplaces, and the neighborhood they lived in knew like everything else in the second sub They lived in a third-floor apartment in a big, hollow apartment block with a very nice park courtyard, and on evenings warm enough, they often ate down at tables in the courtyard and talked with their neighbors, played games, read, did handwork. It was a real community, and sometimes Maya would look around her at the people in it and think here is a historical reality that would not ever be recorded in any way. A good, solid neighborhood with everyone doing their work and having their families together as some kind of shared collective project. In which an individual family made sense as part of a larger whole that was not easy to characterize whole decades slipped by in this anonymous goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. I thought I just, I was interested in what you thought about that sort of um, to me, that was like a very striking kind of moment, which I think is not one. I mean, we get in, in the accounts of her and Michelle's life together, we do get that it's peaceful, that are routines and that the cities that, you know, the the big new Martian cities are kind of working themselves out into, um, uh, you know, being real place, real sustaining places for people to live. But I don't feel like we get this kind of evocation of like neighbor communal neighborhood yeah. life, this very like urban kind of ideal urban picture of urban life.
1: Well, it's almost, I was going to say it's almost suburban life. It feels like very, it almost feels like, um, it reminds me of the essay that Stan wrote about Enough is as Good as a Feast, where he's describing yeah, yeah. like his life with like when he's raising his kids in this like communal, and they'd have a, they'd have like a potluck every. Eat together. E- right. Eat together and they raise their kids together and it's very idyllic and, and, And everyone has their own private lives, but then they share this thing in public. But then also on the page before that, it's interesting because it's sort of a contrast in the same section of the years. She describes, she says, or it says, the years flowed by like water downriver. Maya imagined Terran lives were like Terran rivers fast and wild at mm-hmm. their starts in the mountains, strong and full across the prairie, slow and meandering near the sea while on Mars, their lives resembled the abrupt jumbled paths of the streams. They were now, they were only now creating falling off scarps, disappearing in potholes, getting j- pumped up to unexpected new elevations, great distances away. Um, so that's interesting because it, and, and I underlined, I underlined the big section that you read as well, but I underlined that one too. And I didn't really realize until you read that one. And I was, getting ready to read this one, that they're very contradictory in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. also, it seems contradictory, but it's actually not because in a Martian river or a Martian river of life, you would have extended periods of nothingness, right? Of kind of, of not nothingness, of calm. Um, and it kind of go, speaks to the kind of uh, the billion year history of areology, mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing that that, you know, uh, or the life that could be lived for a thousand years, right? That um, you will have like these momentous event, you know, major life events, like moving across the country or whatever, right? Uh, <laughs> starting a new <laughs> job or like whatever. Um, yeah. But uh, but then, at, at the, you know, the vast majority of it is just kind of the day-to-day uh, uh, everydayness which um doesn't feel like an event when it's happening but you know uh maybe in retrospect congeals into a kind of equilibrium or or, or, a, or a kind of you know isolated moment or a moment that you can say oh it was nice at that time when things were right. were happening that way or things were calm or just things were boring right um right right uh yeah i really like that that section too um and the fact that it is a it is an extended period of her life where she seldom saw Desmond and whole decades slipped by in this anonymous goodness and very rarely did the ghosts of her previous incarnations come back to haunt her nor her old friends either. So it's you know that period like yeah you have like intense amazing experiences with a a group of people for several years and then suddenly. You just don't see them anymore. Like for a long time, you don't see them. You don't talk to them. You don't hear from them because for one reason or another, they've moved away. You've moved away. You've, you're in a different circle of friends. They're in a different circle, whatever. Um, And that's just kind of a kind of fact of life. Yes. (laughs) I don't know what to say about it. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I was thinking, yeah, I mean, I feel like something we talked about with the Mars books is the way in which you get these, like, great moments when um, you, the reader, realize that people on Mars have been making, like, daily life happen, like, reproducible daily life happen kind of all around, and you know, we, the readers, you know, following the plot, uh, like, and following our, you know, our band of heroes or whatever have been paying attention to, uh, one kind of thing. And then all of a sudden we're like out with Nergal and we're like in this valley farming community where everybody has developed their own like trade system and they're growing all of this like great stuff. And they have like market days where they all hang out together what, you know what I mean? That that sort of, um, this kind of idea that like, um, which is not an idea that is counter to to revolution or the demand for transformation, but about how um, in the wake of the revolution or in the kinds of conditions when people can make their own lives, they do start making their own lives. And the ways in which they make those lives are not... um, uh don't just reproduce the same thing you know or not like competitive capitalism right. but instead like cooperative uh you know mutual support and care and i mm-hmm. feel like this image mm-hmm. This image stood out to me because I think that in the Mars books, we don't see that in the urban centers. And here we're seeing this picture. I mean, to me, it felt like I hear your sort of read of it as kind of suburban seeming. But I was thinking like it has like a little bit of a Jane jacobs quality just because mm. of the emphasis on neighborhood and the idea of people living in these big, yeah. dense apartment buildings. But you have this space that you can come down and share with other people and, like, do your do your handwork. I can't imagine Maya, like, you know, knitting or mending or whatever, but maybe she made Michelle do that. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> um, okay, we're back after some technical difficulties. Minor
0: technical difficulties. Uh, the last time I had to do a job interview over uh-huh. Skype, hmm. um, the – Partway through, I stopped being able to hear anything that they were saying to me, Mm -hmm. and I sort of told them this, but they couldn't fix it, and they really wanted to keep going with the job interview, and so I just started answering the questions that I thought that they were probably asking.
1: I think that's pretty much what what you... (laughs) Did you get the job?
0: Uh, I got offered to come for a, a, a campus visit. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. you know, you should so, keep
1: trying then. That's yeah, that's exactly. a that's a success exactly. in academia.
0: Persistence. Persistence. I think what I was I think what I was thinking about is the way in which there's a nice kind of just in this thinking about like habit and daily life, freedom, uh, ongoingness and event, these kinds of uh, whatever mm. um, things. You know, that here we get like Maya and low point she's in what, you know, in many ways sounds like a caring kind of situation, but it's like not good for her. Right. Whereas, um, this situation with Michelle, I mean, partly it seems better because it's not just them stuck in their couplehood, right? right. They're also in a neighborhood, right? Right? right. not just in their little home, um, in their little apartment or whatever. But it's also kind of like, I think, you know, I I think we're being allowed to think like both things about like being in that kind of like daily repetitive condition of, you know, this is just the ongoing stuff. This is just daily life. Like, um, and obviously there can be versions of that, like the versions that like most of us live in, um, now that actually just like suck because there's our daily lives are so interpenetrated, Mm -hmm. not only by like, you know, egregious forms of state power, but like, by all of the extraordinary depletions of like life under like capital. Yeah. But like imagine <laughs>
1: driving <laughs> to Lowe's saw. every day.
0: <laughs> well, exactly. Like driving to Lowe's every day or, <laughs> or like, you know, there's nowhere you can walk to and yet you live in a small town. I cannot right?
1: walk pretty much any, I could walk to a CVS and a Walgreens. Yes. Anyway, go ahead. It's not about oh, both me.
0: CVS and Walgreens.
1: Yeah. They're right across the street from each other.
0: Classic. Classic. <laughs> anyway, I just you know, like I I like that here it's part of the ways in which I feel like this story is like actually doing a lot of like really kind of complicated conceptual stuff as it goes on or in that, yeah. in that like Stan way, letting us think about so, a lot of things that are really complicated. There's
1: two things too. That, that There's this great parallel here in the helping her and the, and one of the helping him sections where she is grieving over Frank and like really asks him like, what's the deal with Frank's murder? You were there, you know, did, did Frank do it? And he has this thing. is like, no, he didn't do it. Even if he told people to do it, he didn't do it. That's Hitler's. That's like that thing about Hitler. Right? Hitler, yeah. like only following orders. Like the ki- people who killed the people are the killers. Hitler is just a crazy guy who told people to kill the kill. You know, like Charles Manson or whatever. Right, uh, we right, could talk right. about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on right. a bonus episode, but anyway. Um, but um, but so he has. She has that moment where he comforts her and says, you know, uh, and the the moral of that story is, you know, life is what matters, and we're the ones who are living and stay in the now and then Desmond um in the helping her helping him section comes to her and is like really broken up because Sax you know and and others seem to believe that Hiroko is still alive and you know Desmond cannot deal with this because he's like there's no way she's alive uh I you know didn't see her body but it's just impossible and they have to let it go and it's too painful. And so she comforts him in the same way. It says, this is one Oh six. Well, whatever uh, it's life that matters. Isn't that what you told me one time? Did I, I think so. It seems like you did <laughs> a good working principle anyway, whoever said it. Um, and so there's this parallel there with the, them helping each other through the deaths of these two, like massively important people uh, to the, uh, who are, who are really important to them. And this, this question of like, it's interesting too. Cause like a lot of these, um, Sections are also about memory and history and so that the dead never really die because not only because you don't know if they actually died or not in the case of Hiroko, but also because you're just haunted by the past constantly, like with Frank, right?
0: Right, right. Haunted by the past. And then also there's that kind of idea of like, although this story doesn't talk a lot about or maybe at all about life extension, like in these like extremely extended lives, like, you know, at the end of that section, we're talking about. Before the old friends coming to visit would be a haunting, yeah, you know, And yeah. I mean, and I think it, it's they're it equated, a yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting to think about the sort of like, well, under certain circumstances, like if you lived long enough, like you know, your past can show up again and like can both be alive and also haunting, yeah, you, yeah, right. Um, yeah, I like that. That sort of, um, I, I think there's a throughout the story, we get, um, uh, moments or like, uh, forms of life described as like worlds or little worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Also that like grief is a world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think that's such a, um, yeah, I thought that was a really like lovely thing in this story because like grief is a world because. It, walls you, it walls you off from other people. Um, but it's also a world because it rewrites the world for you. Yeah. You know, the loss of somebody rewrites those little trails that you go on oh, or yeah. like reveal reveals a thing that you don't, um, see or think about one of those, one of those, you know, one of the parts of the ship that you have never, it's never occurred to you that that's a place where a person might be yeah. like,
1: you yeah. know, it
0: has that kind of like world revealing quality, as well you know and again like just like also i think a nice that some things in this story made me think a little bit about stuff that we you and i talked about with red moon that we liked you know just the kind of like the invocation of a friendship and of mutual support right without like much demand without demand
1: yes yeah. yeah 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 definitely and it ends in this the section ends in this just incredibly sweet uh yeah. moment like but it it's so sa- it's incredibly sweet but it's also called losing him which kind of yeah. implies a kind of end but we also know that it can't actually be the end until one of them dies but yeah but um and even then of course they'll be they'll be haunting each other whatever but he has this great dream um that he relates to her as she's walking him back to the train where they're going to the same conference and they're booked in the same hotel and it's Cupid who booked them in the same (laughs) hotel. And, and it ends on this, another just really sweet and kind of true thing. Uh, I woke up, I was laughing too hard. Just like now I said, no, no, don't wake up yet. The good part is coming. And she says, no, the good part already happened. And, uh, he nodded and they hugged each other. Then the train pulled off and he was pulled in and he was off. And it's really this kind of end of this relationship. Um, that has lasted hundreds of years. Yeah. That yeah. is really um, just like this really reliable sort of friendship that even when it's absent, it's always sort of present or could uh, reappear at any time. It's um, just really like a beautiful story about a friendship, basically, yeah. uh, and yeah. what a real, what, what friendship is, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I really liked it.
1: Okay, four teleological, thumbs up. T- thumbs up. I, it gets my approval
0: it, get, it gets my approval. um I loved four teleological trails yeah I just like uh this is um
1: this is one of these another one that's I think really rereadable and really like um you can really like dig into it in a lot of ways I think
0: and it's like uh it's yeah right I mean it's it's incredibly smart but it's also it's funny and charming and then has these moments of kind of just great, like, you know, uh, revelation of the natural world. Uh, I also loved that. So the second time I read it, I read it thinking, could I with just like, how much would it take for this to be just a story about, um, hiking over and over a specific location on earth? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, it's very close to being that it could just be on earth. Yeah. Right. I mean, there, you know, we know that it's Mars, it's Cromelin crater, right. Which is on Mars. There are things that like, don't sound precisely like earth, but the sort of like the set of experiences and the part that makes me think that made me think, I want to go back and reread it and think about whether I think it could be on earth um, is when the narrator um, is caught in the, rain and at some point like his glasses have fogged up and Mm. then he goes into the little store to buy something and uh, his his wallet is soggy even though he's kept it like inside his pants yeah i was like i just love that you have glasses and a wallet that's awesome (laughs) yeah exactly
1: yeah glasses and a wallet that's funny people are still wearing eyeglasses on mars even with like the life extension they haven't
0: they're like special glasses.
1: Maybe, they've been but- fixed. Uh, yeah, they've been <laughs> done LASIK surgery or whatever. I so here's a, a wacky reading of this and see what you think. What Go for I it. what I was reminded—it's not really a reading, but uh, what it reminded me of, um, in a weird way, was mm. Edgar Allan Poe. And the what? yes, and the story. <laughs> I mean, it's in first person, but what's the story? Uh, when about the guy who follows a stranger through the streets? Do you know man that man in one? the crowd? Man in the crowd. It reminded me of that for whatever reason, just because it's oh, wow. such a. First of all, it's a first-person narration of someone you know walking. You know, it's a walking? hike, sure, True. but it's also this uncanny landscape i mean as far as it's uncanny in the Mm. sense of it's unheimlich right because it is it's definitely like modeled on an earth landscape but it's also in the guise of mars right so the the part where i first like sort of got this uh feeling was on page 112 um because also there's these uncanny things happening like there's paint on these On these trees, or is it
0: genetically engineered lichen? Is
1: it lichen or is it paint? And I can't tell. And of course, that's you know a key element of the uncanny. But on one twelve, it says, and this for whatever reason, I don't know, it just reminded me of Poe. I kept slogging uphill, hoping, of course, that none of the battlements to left and right would extend unbroken across my path. Battlements. It's just weird word choices, Mm. I think. Mm -hmm. And still wondering if I was on an old trail, drowned in leaves. Every time the gap between battlements became tight, I would see rough stacks of stones helping me up, barely visible into the years of clutter, like this like you know visibility um and then these like stacks of stones, and are they signs, or are they not you know? Then just as I was sure it was a trail, it would all go away and I would be thrashing up through the forest again. The question became the salient feature of the climb, absorbing all my thinking, all my rain rain blurred inspection of the wall dripping around me, squishing and slipping underfoot. There were those rocks stacked by hand to aid my way. Was that a gray trailblaze on the tree right there in the middle of that tight little copse? But why put it there? Up I fought ducking to you know like it's just this very kind of um yeah uh what's that like the kind of i don't know if it's anti-transcendentalism or like what's the kind of oh gothic it's feel in certain ways it's very gothic gothic you know and and also and then like the section then the next section, he takes his parents up precipice hit trail. Like, what's more, what's more weird than that is like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna almost kill my parents <laughs> <laughs> by bringing them up a giant hill, you know, up up precipice trail. Uh, um, I,
0: yeah. Yeah. I think so. Uh, I totally had not thought that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's what I'm here for.
0: And I think I don't find it. I mean, and actually, I think, okay, so it's interesting then to think, because we do get the sort of, um, uh, on 115, when he's when the narrator is talking about how, okay, there used to be all of these trails, I'd been hiking crumbling, Crater for years, and then I read a history, and when I read the history, I learned that there had been all these trails, and the trails had been covered over, so of course, this, like, sort of goes back to his experience in that first section when he's like, I think I am on a truck. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. Um, which I think is funny because I feel like my, in my own experiences of hiking I have frequently done the thing where I have like repeatedly I've just gone back and forth wildly in my head about whether this actually is the trail and then you start looking for all of the things that you're like this is definitely the sign that I'm on the trail and then at some point you're like no I've actually wandered off the trail and I'm following something that mm-hmm. is not you know um but then he uh so on 115 Finding the old trails, trail phantoming, exactly. he called it. it, is a new art form making use of and preserving the older one. And I think, first of all, this is like such an awesome, like this, I mean, it totally makes me think of like, uh, at the end of Aurora, rebuilding the beaches, or just ideas about eco that that might be not only about like, you know, making things grow in the first place, but about like finding and refinding a relation to the land, to the landscape, um, all of the stuff in in the Mars books about like uh, you know the need to build or make things, you know, in a way that like terraforming at some point like it just starts running itself. Right. But then the then the human natural world interactions. Not that we're those things are separate in the first place, but like the trails start being built. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, but that idea of phantoming does also make us think about like the way in which that like um it's also haunting, you know. It's not yeah. only about just like discovering, it's also about being haunted by previous presences, mm-hmm. by your own imagination, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by your own ability to interpret or misinterpret signs. Yeah, you know.
1: Well, that like, these trails weren't, you know, he's he just assumes they were built by a co-op currently administering the crater, but no, they were built by a succession of inspired crazies who had gotten into a kind of contest with each other to see who could build the most beautiful trails. Right. And that those that 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 those folks are, you know, uh, gone, but that the 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 um, the point of the terraforming for them wasn't simply to terraform, but what was to like, let's. Let's make this as beautiful as possible, not just functional, but like an artwork, you know. Um, And then um, at the end of that section, it says, uh, uh, looking ahead, we saw, oh, so he's, uh, oh, he's now he's uh, hiking with a whole group of people, like kids.
0: I think it's with his kids and his partner. Doesn't he say
1: that? Is Is it just his kids or is it just...
0: One day, well, who knows? One day yeah. we took the kids. Yeah, so exactly. We could read this as a family, or if it's they live in a co-op, we could read this as you know, yeah, adults and kids. Or
1: they're ways. like a, or some kind of feral.
0: <laughs> or just feral children.
1: Feral group. Well, it's like he calls it Dawn Patrol at the beginning. So, is this a kind of whatever? Who knows? But it's, it's Wait, weird it because.
0: Or can this dude just not sleep? That was kind of what I, Mm. you know, it's like, this is, or this is his morning time when he gets to go out and not be with those kids.
1: I think later on he says he likes to do it in the, in the dawn because, you know, there's, or get it all done, you know, before the sun comes up or whatever. So that it's, 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 it's over with or something, but. Um, but that also, yeah, is he an insomniac or, 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 or is this kind of a, uh, kind of one of those feral groups that we encountered in like blue Mars or whatever? I um, don't think so. Cause
0: he talks about going back to the house at the end of the day okay. and have a shower and a fire.
1: Maybe it's a disc house. A Maybe it's a disc house. And there's also like a <laughs> shop, right? A store. But anyway, what um, yeah. all the great shatter rock was light pink granite and all the like and growing on it was a pale green, pale green circles, modeling pale pink shatter pale pink pale green carpet on pale pink stairs it looked like something the incas had built or visitors from atlantis even the kids stopped to look so it's another again like a um, uh recourse to these like mythical or historical <laughs> but deep historical like lost to history civilizations that um, are somehow reconstituted on on Mars as if the pattern, you know, it's a teleolo- teleological trail, kind of the pattern reasserts itself in kind of a kind of some some kind of long human life. Um, natural genius, Dor obviously explored the eastern crater wall thoroughly. Now, has Dor been mentioned at all or is this just this guy? Like I was looking backwards and s- trying to see who is Dorr
0: when i went back through it i thought that door had not yeah. already been yeah. mentioned and i just assumed that he's one of the crazy geniuses yeah. who had made the beautiful trails
1: it has to be that but because i don't think he's mentioned at all but um uh and that so then and that and then speaking to that kind of whatever it's it's uh, you know i think the uncanny works for me in thinking about this because then on uh, on 118 um trail comes and goes depending on how much you need it where many ways will go just people disperse and take them all and so the trail fades and disappears you don't need it when the way gets hard the trail becomes clear again there are only a few ways to go and people find those over and over. This happens everywhere, wherever people walk the land. Most trails were never planned, you see, but were made by a collective of people spread through time, all evaluating the slope on their own, and very often coming to the same conclusions. So when I lose the trail and then come back on it again, I am always pleased to see that I have made the same judgment as others before me. I say, hey, the natural genius here once again, inside all of us, how nice. So that's obviously like works as a metaphor for kind of human history as well. Um, And I think they even, uh, the narrator even picks that up (coughs) sort of later um, on the, maybe the bottom of the page.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It could be that the human landscape or even the continuum in which time unfolds has invisible ramps and battlements that shape our course, right? Um, so there's a kind of, uh, you know, again, the pathetic fallacy as a kind of, uh, living metaphor for, you know, human struggle patterns of history, whatever. Um,
0: right. And I think there's an interesting, um, the sort of, I, I mean, so first of all, I think the sort of the joke about natural genius then is very, is like. Uh, sly, because we think like genius is like originality, right? But of course, here, the point is, it's not originality. It's just like collectivity. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. You know,
0: that is the natural genius is the thing that we have in common. That means that when we're trying to figure out how to get from one point to another point across a difficult piece of terrain, it is highly likely that we'll go the same way a person went before yeah. us. right? Yeah. That's what genius is, right? Yeah. Um, And I think that that sort of um the kind of uh the other thing that I think is a really interesting play in here, and I do think that this speaks to thinking that you what you were saying about like, you know, do you want to put this sort of story into conversation with like um you know, some something like the Gothic or Poe say where um, landscape tends to be like an uncanny registration of psychic processes, right? You know, I mean, it's there both to scare you mm-hmm. by, you know, being dark and mossy and mm-hmm. whatever, um, but also to to index in some ways something about, like, you know, internal darkness, say, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Like, it also works out in the, the gothic, right? Um, uh, or Or, you know, there's also the version in which which is more like the kind of not really the sublime version, but I guess the kind of like loosely American kind of like transcendentalist version Mm -hmm. of maybe not transcendentalist, but this kind of like a very American version of what nature is in which we look at it and it provides us with a kind of confirmation, right, because we can not only recognize its beauty, but we can also find the best way to walk through it. Mm -hmm. We can, you know. And we can make national parks or whatever. Uh uh And this is clearly kind of about being in a national park or in a park. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But then we also have the funny kind of I don't know. I think there's a really interesting because we keep, as readers, mistaking this land, despite the fact that the whole story is about walking on trails that somebody already made, but they've become obscured. Or if not, if you've lost the trail, there's still going to be another trail. Yeah, I think nonetheless, you read it as a story about a person walking in nature, right? Mm-hmm. And not, you know, like a creature who is a mix of like nature and culture walking through a space that is a mix of nature and culture, even though we get told over and over again that in fact, like... You know, some of the most beautiful things that he sees are effects of something that somebody
1: mm-hmm. made, right? right? Yeah. You know,
0: and that sort of, you know, that we always want to decide on one side or the other. Or it's natural. It's cultural. I think is the thing. And I mean, and even the idea that you would use like trail making, trail walking, and trail finding in order to metaphorize something about history, right? Even that relies on some version of a kind of nature culture separation. That here, I think we get keeps getting undone for us in these ways that like you know so we can both follow the metaphors through and realize that there are ways in which the metaphors don't work because after all they are metaphors right right and i love because i love that that part that you read the um on the bottom of 118 uh the, which begins with there is something out there which i think is just great um the landscape calls forth the trail it imposes on us the best way forward um, when the going is hard people come together, the trails appear out of nowhere, new paragraph. Later I heard there is indeed an engineered lichen called gray paint right. patch lichen. I'm sure the designer thinks it's very funny, <laughs> right? And so that his his confusion at the beginning of like, is there, you know, are has somebody marked this trail or mm-hmm. could there possibly be a kind of lichen that looks like gray paint? Turns out at the end, like, hey, there is a kind of lichen that looks like gray paint that somebody has engineered And maybe that's what's growing there, you know? And at that point, like knowing whether you're in the field of nature or the field of like, you know, human culture is impossible, right?
1: I like the – what you're saying I like to think about in – it it kind of uh, – I was thinking about why are the sections of this called what they're called, but, um, you know, the wrong way, mistakes can be good, you can't lose the trail, (laughs) the natural genius, and it kind of – helps to think through the purpose of the of the of the um, titles of these, because, you know, yeah, it's about a kind of a teleo- a, tele- a teleology, a kind of, you know, naturalness to um, discovering life ways and routes that seem like discoveries to us, but that are, you know, much larger patterns that are sort of, you know, almost impossible to see from our puny eyes. Uh, human perspective. Yeah,
0: right, right. And then, and then, in the end, like it's like even if you were walking on a trail somebody else made. Sometimes that trail is you know perilous and like really wet. Yeah. And it's just amazing that you made it down. Yeah. In one piece without breaking your leg or losing your well, glasses. which
1: seems like the that, that's the resolution of the of the <clears> of the section the the level of the flood dropped a bit and I just succeeded in fording the rapids and clambering down the opposite side of the ravine step by step. the water roaring everywhere around me. I got a good grip on a wet birch and laughed out loud. It was one of the most civilized <laughs> moments of my life So that's interesting, right? yeah, like it's a paradox. okay. Um,
0: I love it. I loved this one.
1: Yeah, it was so great. Okay, so Discovering Life. I love this one. Yeah. Because, for lots of reasons, but uh, it has, you know, a depiction of Los Angeles traffic that makes me uh, perversely nostalgic, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously. And also this, it's another kind of, it's a story that follows from the Michelle in Antarctica chapter where they don't go to Mars they don't they, go to Mars. They send robots and <laughs> the robots discover life there. And this section is such a great depiction of, again, everydayness, but an, a mundane everyday, everydayness. That's just a continuation of our own crappy reality where um, just un, just I was just underlining the kind of mundane things in the first paragraph. Ugly brown mountains... Uh, security gate, security guards, employee parking lot, guest parking lot, <laughs> TV, TV trailers bringing their own equipment. Of course, you know, freeway off ramp, like just these kind of like, Oh God, like, is this the future? Is this the future? Is this just yeah. sameness, yeah. Yeah. you know, this just gray, ugly brown sameness. Is this the actual future that is just the past, you know, um, they have so they've discovered like microbacteriological whatever life on Mars, and they're having a press conference. And on one twenty two, there's a reference to somebody named John who seems to be running the press conference. Who I presume would probably be John Boone, but who knows? They don't say it, but because this is a story about Mike and Bill. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's funny how much the, um, uh, that, so one, I mean, it's not, it follows on, um, probably not actually going to make more than one point, I didn't really just preface <laughs> it on. Um, but it follows um, potentially on the Michelle in Antarctica story, and it, then it also follows on the story that I'm now forgetting about hiking, whatever it is, Canyon.
1: Exploring Fossil Canyon. Exploring
0: Fossil Canyon. Is that the one where they, she's on the guided hiking trip? Yeah, right?
1: Eileen and Roger are on the guided yeah. hiking yeah. trip. Yeah,
0: Where the, um, you know, the hikers all get super excited because oh, they right. think they have life on Mars. Right. And then, and we, we talked, we were talking about that story that, you know, the interesting idea of you would be living on Mars and you know that you are the life on Mars and yet you would still be invested in you know this idea right. is their life on Mars right. um and I think here the the thought of sending um, which we should not be in any way caught off guard by sending robots to Mars, since of course, like uh yeah, that's happened what we're doing um, uh, but that it would be robots who would be up on Mars and would find life on Mars mm-hmm. and the life of course, like, you know, I, th- you know, maybe it's been up there doing like the Archaea plot the whole mm-hmm. time. Right. <laughs> um, but there's something that's so like following from the Mars trilogy that is so alienating about that, about the thought of the robots exploring Mars instead of people or the thought that like, Oh, when, how would we find life? Well, we'd find life by sending intelligent machines up there, not by sending human beings up there, you know, as if like, the life wouldn't have been found if humans had gone up. Right. But when you, the robots up, they were able right. to find it.
1: Well, and then when you, once you find it, then you can't send any humans up because it'll contaminate the life right. that's already exactly. there. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, so it it's this kind of, it's a really melancholy, it, in a certain way, it's, it, so it's this really melancholy moment in Bill's life because mm-hmm. Bill says, well, I'm a humans to Mars type of guy. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's what I think, I, that's what I thought I was doing here. Um, and, um, and it turns out that, you know, that whole project is pointless now because we discovered some little things that we don't even know what they are, but we're, you know, now we, we won't ever get up there and now we're just right. going to be stuck here eating our lunch of flavonoids and antioxidants.
0: <laughs> even, even though like if it actually happened that we found like, I mean, of course, like the thing is like, this is exciting, you know, of course, we can't feel it as exciting because he, his investment in going to Mars in humans, going to Mars is, Oh, there's a chance to make another world. Yes, right? exactly.
1: So he has a utopian impulse there. It's not just about, it's not just for it's him. It's not just about science. <laughs> it's not just about science and it's not just about knowing stuff um or not being alone in the universe it's about making a new world like making a fresh start right a fresh start Um, Yeah. and it's you know but but no he's stuck in the mundane on 127 he calls his wife wanting to talk to her wanting to say we did it the mission is a success and the dream has therefore been shattered but she wasn't in You know, you call, call your wife's office. She's not there. Um, and then he has these kind of like bitter self-recrimination about like, I've been spending, I've been busting my ass spending 60 hours in the office, watching my kid go to daycare. Um, and now, you know, all that is for, you know, for nothing. And it's so sad at the bottom of 127 yeah. um, as he drops his kid off at, the, at a daycare expression on the boy's face of abandonment and stoic solitude of facing another 10 hours at the same old place to be gotten through somehow like everybody else. A look which on the face of a three year old had pierced Bill to the heart.
0: That whole, I mean, yeah, that Oops. just like, um, you know, yeah, send the kids to work too. But the yeah. or you know, this is a kind of, that is a moment of like, um, what's the David Gra- Graeber book? Bullshit jobs, bullshit right? Jobs. You know, like in some way, like the experience the child is having, the reason that that is like a work experience is because of you know the way in which bullshit jobs work. Like you just are there, so You're basically just filling out your time, yeah. right? So they. The experience the child has of I don't want to be here is also the experience of adults who supposedly are working and not being cared for, right?
1: I went to a furniture store, furniture warehouse the other day with my partner, and there was one man working in it. This gigantic furniture warehouse. <laughs> he was just sitting there alone. We were the only three, We, you know, we were the only customers there. He got one phone call in the time that we were there. And we walked out and was like, what is it like to work at that fucking place? Like.
0: Yeah, (laughs) there's no
1: point in being there. No one who is shopping for furniture. Nobody. I
0: also that that passage you were just reading, which I think is really interesting, like it's it's weird and interesting to me that he Bill thinks of this as he and Eleanor are caught in a 1950s marriage, even though she works also, because, of course, the characteristic of the 1950s marriage is, is, you know, right, that is inequality write um, a particular gendered inequality and in where labor is taking place and whose labor is getting paid for. Um, but that's also an interesting place for thinking about the thing that you said just a couple of minutes ago, which is like, well, this is a story in which like we're reading, it's the future. We want the future. And the future feels just like either our present or even our past. And that kind of like, you know, stuckness in this kind of like, long post 1950s moment which is really the you know sort of like post you know 1973 moment or whatever it is right of like you know having like the 50s remains a touchstone of something um uh but like there's no sort of like way to attach to like hope for any different kind of Future, right? You know, driving around, even that, like, uh, that there's a moment where I think it's Bill who's thinking about how everybody's so worried about could the bacteria brought back hurt people, but they spend all their time driving around in cars smoking, risk <laughs> smoking of, cigarettes. <laughs> Bill
1: answered many such questions, feeling that there were far too many people who badly needed a better education and risk assessment because people are so, they're nervous about the Andromeda strain. They have to, like, oh, are we going to have to nuke <laughs> Houston or nuke U- Utah? Um, They need a better education and risk assessment. They got in their cars and drove on freeways, smoking cigarettes, holding high energy radio transmitters against their heads in order to get to newsrooms where they were greatly concerned to find out if there were in danger from microbacteria locked away behind triple hermetic seals in Houston. Um, People were ignorant, short sighted, poorly educated, fearful, superstitious, deeply meshed in magical thinking of all kinds. And yet that, too, was not really what was bothering him. But yeah, no, the the the, even the idea that there was that there is this press conference there uh, for astronauts and then the or the you know they're they're pseudo astronauts because they're 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 manning robots now, but that uh, it recreates the kind of press conferences that were done for like the Apollo and the original space missions and and you know, just stuck in that pattern of like, oh yeah, now what we do is we all get on the freeway and we drive to JPL and JPL, the road to JPL is, you know, all, all messed up. And, you know, you just do the same thing over and over again because nothing has changed since since then. Um,
0: right, including that it's all, by the way, all men. All men.
1: Work there. Okay. All men. And you can imagine them in their white shirt, white yeah. short sleeve shirts with black ties and like horn yeah. rim, <laughs> <corn> rim glasses. <laughs> <Corn> rim glasses. <laughs> um, uh and I, they ask these really like silly questions and stuff you know um about like what does it mean um and oh and then this and this, this goes too with the kind of and i think that this on page 128 there's this um other extended moment that that does speak to kind of whatever the mythologized 1950s mentality, but really kind of a, a modern mentality of that we're doing this to create a better future rather than creating a better present right now, living in a present, yeah. right? So, yeah, Um it was down to them, one little lab trying its best to execute the faster, better, cheaper plan, which, cont- which contained within it, as they often pointed out, a contradiction of the second law of thermodynamics, among other problems, <laughs> a, a plan that they knew could only really achieve two out of the three qualities in any real world combination, but making the attempt anyway, finding that the only true cheaper involved was mm-hmm. the cost of their own labor and the quality of their own lives Rocket scientists running like squirrels in cages to make the inhabitation of Mars a reality, a project which only the future Martians of some distant century Mm. would truly appreciate and honor, except now there weren't going to be any future Martians. It's almost like the logic of like mutually assured destruction or something like that, like (laughs) all these scientists working so hard to protect human life by building nuclear weapons and then like you've got all these nuclear weapons and then that just means that you can't have a future because they're going to go off there's also a moment i don't know if it was i think it's behind this but um the notion that like these are just guys doing a job and they get mythologized by this media conglomerate that's like I think it's maybe even in the paragraph after that w- that I was reading, because it's all about being stuck in traffic on the freeway. Like they're treated as these like scientist gurus who know the meaning of life. And then just like everybody else, they're trapped on the 210-110 interchange. <laughs> right, exactly.
0: um, even though even though they have some computer modeling to try to figure out the best way to get home. <laughs> uh,
1: try Google Maps, guys. <laughs> But it also really Uh, reminded me of, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where I turned to you and was like, this is freeway porn. Like, yeah (laughs) it's so depressing to think about, it's so depressing to think about a future Los Angeles where there's still bumper-to-bumper traffic.
0: Right. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And the sort of, um, but I think that that kind of, the way in which one of the things that this, I mean, the story manages to be, um, like a charming story. And of course it ends with this, like really, I think lovely invocation of like what collegial friendship is just like appreciating the weirdos that you work with and appreciating that chance to do something collaborative, which feels so much like, that seems like that's a big part of what Stan always wants to say about science that like, you know, because you can't not do it collaboratively, or you can't not know that you're doing it collaboratively. We do all work collaboratively, but you know, most of the time we pretend we're just doing it ourselves. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, like in the lab, like there's a way in which like that, it, you can't escape that aspect of it. Um, but they here, the sort of like drawing our attention to the way in which like, so in the way that we live, like science is labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and thus is also like exploited in the way that all labor is exploited and is depleting mm-hmm. in the way that labor is depleting. Yeah. Um, and 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 it is that mechanism that makes it that you can only imagine like the you know, like, oh, here's some wonderful future on a different planet as opposed to what makes things better now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and it's even I think my read of the sort of like last two pages of this story you know, as Bill, they're, they're drinking scotch in the car Uh uh, on on the commute home. Um, and Mike says balderdash. Um, and, and it makes Bill happy as he thinks about being with these weird, these weird, brilliant guys who say balderdash. (laughs) Um, and you know, and that, that's a moment in which like, he gets to have this glimpse of like a set of things that are part of his life now, you know, and that could, you know, that, that are what make things matter. Mm -hmm. Right. That is the meaning of life, right. Right. Is like the connection and enjoyment of other people. And it's also that, that then lets him think, you know, what's the relationship to the future got to be. It's got to be about making where we are now, the place that yes, we want it to be,
1: exactly, which
0: leads him to end to end with Mike saying, "We'll just have to terraform Earth instead."
1: Exactly, and like that, you know that. So it it it's a hopeful it's a hopeful ending, like a hopeful gesture at an ending. Yeah, because yeah, even because yeah. Mars presents this opportunity to make the world new, to make a new world, to do it right again, and and Bill is of the is kind of of the he reacts to the discovery of life as saying like, well, that possibility is now shut off because we're not going, and and Mike's like, well, we will go, don't worry, and but it's like, well, we were not going to go for a long time, and Mike was also like, well, Bill, you're not going to be the one of the ones to go anyway, so what are you complaining about? But so fine, we're not going to go. So what are our options left then to make a new world? Well, we got to make a new world here right like that's the only if if the goal is to make a new world then then and we can't go to another world then we're just gonna have to make the earth the new world
0: right right and it's not
1: yeah it's not gonna
0: be able to begin with that fantasy of being freed from history or of terra nullius right it's not going to begin from emptiness and it It has to begin from where we are and
1: it won't and it yeah and it won't be able to begin from the kind of like the settler colonial myth that created the myth of the new world right? right um right it'll have to because we already did that and that, that didn't work out too well, <laughs> well uh, it,
0: worked, it worked out well for some people yeah <laughs> yeah a few, a few of them a
1: few of them <laughs> anyway um yeah this is cool yeah. i like i really like this yeah. uh, chapter
0: I did, too. And it's, a, it again, just like the sort of tonal shifts, I think, are really just so pleasurable yeah. here, you know, and like the kind of to move us from like um, being with Maya and Desmond, you know, these two characters who we've spent so much time thinking about to the sort of strangeness of the four teleological trails. And then to this story that's a completely different that we don't even have to attach to the Mars timeline. Right the trilogy timeline or the revised timeline of Michelle and Antarctica at all. Right. That could just be a standalone. Right. right?
1: Yeah. It's cool.
0: Yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome.
1: Um, good job.
0: Yeah. So for next, for next time, what are we going to do? Are we going to do next two? I
1: think coyote and Michelle and Michelle, because green Mars is really long. Uh, and it's, I've already read it and it's wonderful.
0: I am extremely excited to read it.
1: Um, I apologize and- for jumping ahead, but I, my, my stuff and my other books didn't arrive, like they took a week to arrive and so I needed to read something that wasn't a doorbell.
0: I, I completely understand that. I feel freaked out if I don't have something to read. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. That wasn't the news for in, for instance.
0: Oh, no, no, no. I, yeah, no, that's it's too terrible.
1: Uh, the static is returning on your end, so this is a good time to stop. All right. right. (laughs) Until next time, (laughs) goodbye. Thanks for for listening.